Does your vision for business match what you see happening on a daily basis? Welcome to Jim White's Circle of Success, where Jim White brings it all together. For over 30 years, Jim White has worked with organizations and individuals worldwide to help develop and implement excellence. You'll get the inside story on how to create innovative leaders from one corner of your company to the other. Get everyone on your team contributing to the bottom line. Keep building revenue even when the economy and your customers have flatlined. And more. Jim White's Circle of Success Radio covers it all, from communication to contract negotiation, from personal fulfillment to revving up cash flow. It's not about theories. It's about showing you what works and how to make it work for you. And now, here's your host, Jim White. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. This is Jim White coming to you live from Carmel, California on Saturday, November the 12th, uh, 10 a.m. Pacific Daylight Time. We want to welcome all of our international view, uh, listeners and uh, viewers uh, from uh, around the world. And do we have a wonderful show for you this week, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, as you know, we've been doing a series on homeland security and the uh, economy in the United States and, uh, and how that affects the globe. We have a just an absolutely uh, fantastic individual which has joined us live in studio today. It's always great to have people in studio. Uh, and it's uh, Professor Rodrigo Natito Gomez, and I know I'm, I'm absolutely going to uh, uh, mess that up there, so you can correct me. Uh, he is the professor at the Center for Homeland Defense and Security at the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, California. His fields of research include the uh, geopolitical effects of homeland security and defense and national security with a regional focus on North America, border security, uh, discourse analysis, and the implications of new technologies for the security and defense policies. His research on homeland security issues has led to his travel along the U.S.-Mexican border. Now, hear that, hear that, along. We're going to talk about that travel uh, along the border to interview political uh, actors, uh, intellectuals, and authorities. In the course of his research, uh, Dr. Gomez has observed the geographic conditions. And these words uh, to all of our listeners, uh, uh, you that tune in every week, you, you know, when I when I do a pause and I have an emphasis on a word, there is a reason for that, right? So the, today is no, no different. Uh, these conditions that affect the security ecosystems of the U.S. Uh, uh, perimeter, uh, gaining firsthand knowledge of every mile of this important and conflicted territory. Uh, the topic of the, sh- of the show today is Security alert inside of NAFTA, how the war on drugs impacts the business environment in North America. So, Rodrigo, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Jim. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure and another. It absolutely is a pleasure. I tell you what, ladies and gentlemen, I am am so excited. We're going to have a conversation uh, today. This uh, Rodrigo has so much uh, passion for what he does, uh, so much knowledge. Uh, so let's, let's start off first a little bit more about your background. I, I mean, you, you have such a fascinating journey. So it's, it's tell our listeners a little bit more. Uh, I mean, you, you're where you're from, your your education, and how you became so passionate about this subject, especially Mexico, more so. Sure. So, Jim, I, I, I'm uh, Mexican, as your listeners will hear from my accent. I cannot uh, hide that part of well, it's just like the southern expression. So, exactly. Okay. So I'm, I'm, I'm from Mexico. I raised and born there uh, happily. I went to law school in my home state. I, I uh, became a specialist in, in, in international commerce inside the NAFTA region. Uh, one of the things that I ended up doing, and that was a, a very exciting adventure, was that I had the opportunity because I was knowledgeable not only in law but also in cultural uh, differences between Mexico and the U.S. We would offer uh, companies uh, to uh, help them establish themselves uh, inside of Mexico to do business there. We would help them understand the business environment there. uh, And at the same time, we would explain that business environment using 
language that uh, American companies and American businessmen uh, could understand. So that was kind of uh, my 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 uh, point of entry to keep uh, to keep the vocabulary that we will be using to the the uh, security environment of of uh, the border region because. Uh, especially after 9/11 and by 2005 or 2006, most of our clients that used to have to deal with uh, the Food and Drug Administration or mm-hmm. the Department of Transportation, that those were our bread and butter and the normal things that we would do, uh, started to have to deal with this thing called the Department of Homeland Security, and right, we had more right, and right. more memos and documents and stuff related to this new thing that. Uh, was never meant to be part of the international policy of the United States, but nonetheless had become, at least from the Mexican point of view, the most important agency uh, regarding international commerce. So by studying what this Department of Homeland Security was, I started to be more interested, in fact, in the security aspect of the relation and less about the business environment. So that's how I decided to change careers. What year... Uh, and did you were you doing the, your your law practice in so Mexico? So I, I I was practicing since 2002, so it was okay. after 9/11. Okay, really. But, okay. But there was a a a a, a delay mm-hmm. uh, in the time that it took for this phenomenon to impact Mexico. So uh, as you know, uh, the Department of Homeland Security was not created immediately after 9/11. Exactly. It, it was not not the first choice of the Bush administration for a while we had an office of Homeland Security in the White House, but it took a while political uh, discussions and all that stuff to get the department together. There was some resistance. Right. Uh, and then even after that, well, uh, the Department of Homeland Security is uh, the result of a big uh, merger. So right, right, a right. merger of 22, Justice. exactly, 22 agencies from right. the U.S. government were merged uh, together. And as you know, merging companies and merging organizations, it's a tough... Especially government, thing. right? <laughs> so you, you have all these organizations yeah. with different cultures, and yeah. so putting them together took time again. So it it was not until maybe 2003 or 2004 that this agency became to be... It started being more effective in its uh, uh, performance, and those consequences started to be felt in Mexico. So by 2005, Mexican companies were dealing on daily basis with homeland security-related yeah. issues. Yeah. What I would like to – you have such a fascinating journey. Please share with the listeners a little bit. You're in Mexico. Mm-hmm. And you have an impressive Ph.D., which I left out because I wanted you to explain explain that story. And then what I'd like to do, uh, share uh, this story of how you got to Monterey. Sure. People love to hear these stories. <laughs> of course. So, so tell us about your education. So, and- at that point, I said, this is interesting. This is a new passion, learning about the security environment and how to be sure that the citizens of North America are safe and secure uh, became a passion for me. So I said, how can I do that? I'm a lawyer. I'm not a security expert, so I'll become one. So I changed careers, and I went to Paris at the French Institute of Geopolitics of uh, the University of Paris, Mm -hmm. and I did my master's and PhD there. It was a wonderful experience. Uh, and while doing that, one of the things that I liked about the program, one of the reasons why I went to Paris to study North America, was that their program has a strong, uh, a strong component, a strong geographic component, and field research and getting your hands dirty on the subject matter, it's an important part of it. So uh, I, I do not believe, or I'm not in favor of learning things from the ivory tower and staying up there. I like to see the things that I study directly and learn from experience, from my senses. So, Well, you sure did that because part of that learning experience uh, allowed you to go to the border between the United States and Mexico. That's right. And you actually went the entire 2,000 miles on both sides of the border, that's right. right? That's right. So, wow. So <laughs> How did you do that? Yeah. Oh, it was a four-month uh, four field trip. Uh, 
it was my my field research, but I, I call it sometimes the most incredible road trip I've ever taken. It was a <laughs> fabulous was. adventure. I enjoyed it. It was uh, 2,000 miles uh, uh, east to west, but I actually drove more than 14,000 miles because I would be zigzagging, going up and down to give depth to this uh, right. research. So, so I, I, I got to see every mile of the border region, something that is not easy to do because of the way our uh, highways uh, are built both in Mexico and in the United States. So I started in Texas. I started uh, basically uh, uh, near Galveston, Father Island. And then I drove all the way to uh, San Isidro, to San Diego, and uh, had the opportunity during that time to zigzag, see both sides of the border, and interview most of the actors that have something to do with the success or failure of border management policies. And look, I said border management. I didn't say right, border right, security right. because the right. border is more than just the security. It's the most uh, uh, crossed border in the world. It's a, a critical node in the commerce environment of the United States and, of course, Mexico. It's a, it's a highly important territory, but it's a highly conflictive one. It's full of representations and ideas. So seeing that physically and and talking with those people there, not not, not far in a Washington, D.C. office, but there in the Yuma sector in the middle of the desert, seeing the desert, seeing the, 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 the geographic environment, learning about the different landscapes of security that we have in the border region was an incredible experience, and that was the core of my Ph.D. dissertation. So. Okay. And I know the findings are just volumes and volumes and volumes of findings. But can you condense it? What, what was some of the major takeaways as a result of this research doing both sides and the restrictions or interference? How did the uh, from the from the Mexico side how you perceive, and then from the border patrol side? How did they perceive you driving up and down? And what, you know, Tell us a little bit more about that. Well, the experience in itself was interesting. So uh, some of these areas have no, no easy access for you and me to drive and, 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 and be there the same way you would do it along the California coast, right, for right. example, where you have Highway 1 that would help <laughs> you to follow it very easily. Uh, instead, what you have is a series of commerce corridors of these super corridors for uh, moving cargo from one side of North America to the other that will funnel you to the point of entries. So as long as you want to go to one of the bridges in Laredo or uh, in, in Tijuana, mm -hmm. uh, then, then it's not a problem. If you want to move east-west in between, then you have to end up driving on dirt roads. You have to cross by private cornfields. You have to drive in the middle of the desert. And some of these areas are areas where the Border Patrol has a very strong presence. Right. They are known to be uh, smuggling corridors. And, uh, and uh, the Border Patrol will be uh, understandably uh, uncomfortable with a, a a car driving there in the middle of the night without reason, <laughs> there are no hotels, there's right. nothing. So, right. so part of the experience was learning about that and and uh, explaining to the border patrol every time what I was doing. Of course, I was careful before my trip, and I had a letter from the Mexican Senate that they were aware of my research. I would use that one for the Mexican authorities, right. and I had a letter from the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, from the American side, explaining also what I was doing. So I had I had enough documentation to feel comfortable while doing it, but nonetheless, that was part of the experience to learn how uh, these territories have a environment that it's uh, uh, similar to a low intensity conflict, and or or, or border patrol agents there have to be understandably. Uh, uh, worried about uh, on, on irregular behavior because their life is on the line. So this is an environment where these kind of things matter. So that would be the first finding. So the, in some areas of the border region, the representations and feelings of a low-intensity conflict are there uh, for right, the people right, managing right. the border in those areas. And then you drive 20 miles, and what you have is a logistical uh, uh, center where people are worried not about low-intensity conflict, but about making sure that their just-in-time uh, distribution chains are uh, effective and uh, bring the parts they need to keep their businesses running. So it's it's a weird 
uh, it's a weird experience to be jumping from one da one one side to the other or, uh, and changing the perceptions uh, uh, just by driving 15 miles. Uh, the other the other big uh, finding that I had is that scale matters. So scale matters exactly. So scale matters. Uh, what you feel at the local level mm. changes once you move in the scale of the map and you go to the city level to so the see, county level uh -huh. and then of course the federal level so the different discourses that we have uh, one over the other change completely the way uh, we can think about the border a rancher in texas or a rancher in arizona is worried about a a a, a an environment that has nothing to do with public policy and and uh, the immigration uh, debates regarding citizenship. What he cares about is that he doesn't want to have all that trash and all that danger going through its ranch. Mm -hmm. And same thing at the Mexican side, uh, people who majors who are managing county, uh, county border county uh, areas, their their worry is about the security implications that they have in their day-to-day -day public safety point of view and they have less to think about and they don't think about that much about the big picture uh, and then on the other side when you go to Washington DC or Mexico City there is a certain I, I, I don't find any other word or any word to be there is certain ignorance of the local conditions mm -hmm. or the local mm -hmm. dynamics of this border area so uh, scale matters and mm -hmm. I think that one of the most important things we can do today and we can try to change is to bridge those differences in perception and try to uh, create a more uh, holistic or coherent uh, environment to solve the common problems that we have in this area we got to get a quick break in and we come back from the break I'd like to talk uh, about NAFTA just a little bit and what you mean about the security within in, in NAFTA. Uh, I think I don't of course. believe there's anybody out there listening to the show today that's not aware of NAFTA and different positions you can take since it was adopted in, in 1994. So when we come back from break, let's, let's talk a little bit more about Perfect. that. Perfect. Okay, we'll be right back. This segment is brought to you by... 12 O'Clock High Leadership and Management Summit. 12 O'Clock High is one of the undisputed best movie classics of all time. It is also one of the best business learning tools available. The movie rated number one by top executives for its influence on their management style. Now, the inspiration of the 12 O'Clock High Leadership and Management Summit. An innovative one-day event and 30-day follow-up where you will quickly see what's working and not working on the front lines of your company and in your own leadership style. Learn more at 12high.com. That's 12high.com. We're back with uh, Rodrigo. I tell you what, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, it's been a long time. Uh, and uh, we just recently become acquainted and spent some time in preparation for the show, and uh, I could have been there all day just uh, uh, talking. And uh, uh, what what a talent, and, um, and, and it's wonderful that we have uh, people uh, such as uh, you going forward because we have huge issues. And that's an understatement, and people are saying, yeah, Jim, duh, what's, what's new, right? Uh, huge issues uh, from the economy in the United States, uh, uh, Mexico's economy, I mean, what's going on in Greece and Italy, and then we got uh, our solution to solving an immigration problem is to put up a doggone wall uh, 2,000 miles and try to police that. We're coming into a 2012 election cycle, and if anybody's been watching, watching any of those yahoos so far, it's, it's amazing what we have going. So we have opportunities. Um, so uh, as you can tell, I have a tendency to get myself in trouble. That's the reason my people love me so well. I go places that I shouldn't go sometimes. But anyway, uh, that's what we could do. Uh, so security alerts. It's, it's about the state of security environment in Mexico 
and and I'm reading from a white paper, uh, Rodrigo, has direct repercussions on border security and customs management. Tell us, what do you mean by that? Just drill down on that, one of my favorite words. So uh, uh, there is a a clear correlation between the security environment and the business environment in Mexico. It's not it's not exclusive in Mexico. In every place where you do business, you'll want to have a secure environment. You yep. want to be able to do uh, what you do without worrying about stuff. But the thing is, we still do uh, uh, business in places that are not safe. We have been uh, doing it for a long time when uh, profits uh, compensate what I call the security tax. Right. So if your, your operation will become more expensive if security conditions are not uh, positive. But if the profit compensates, that security tax will still be there. And we've been drilling oil in war zones, and we've been operating in highly profitable environments that are also highly insecure. Mm -hmm. Mexico was never considered to be a highly insecure place. It was not a secure place. It was not as doing business in Sweden. But it was never considered to be a high-risk area. Uh, there are ways to prove that. For example, the the compensation, the, the salary compensations that executives would get when they go to high-risk areas were not that high or were non-existent when you would be an expat in Mexico. But that is changing. I agree. So there is uh -huh. a cost in security. Today, when you want to send an expat and you want to say you're American executive, I want to send you to operate our twin plant in Tijuana, uh, probably he'll ask for a bigger bonus if he'll be there. He'll still go, and, and uh, so there is a cost there. I want to say one thing. Mexico today, for example, and this is a matter of the power of perception and what mm -hmm. uh, academia calls uh, subjective security. Mexi the Mexico of today, and this is a counterintuitive fact, it's safer than it was the Mexico of the 90s, for example. The homicide rate of Mexico has been going down steadily since the 90s till 2006. And it was not until 2006 that that number started to go up because of the war on drugs. Right. So, in fact, if you're going to Mexico today, it is a more dangerous Mexico than in 2005, but it is not a more dangerous Mexico than in 1996, for example. Interesting. So... Still today, the homicide rate of uh, Mexico as an average nation is lower than Brazil. And no one would ask me a question about if it's appropriate to do business in Brazil or not. The answer is, of course, yes, by the way. You should be doing business in Brazil if you're interested in doing it. But the same thing is valid in Mexico. The problem with Mexico is that the kind of violence that it has today is high-profile violence. It's not the same to have four homicides because people were fighting over a poker game, mm -hmm. than to have four homicides, have them beheaded, bring those heads in the middle of a nightclub in Tijuana, and throw them uh, to scare the people. Right. So the kind of violence that Mexico has right now is high-profile violence, is highly organized violence. So the perception is that the state is not capable of competing with these highly adaptive organizations, drug cartels. So in that sense, there is a cost uh, associated not only with the security itself, but with the perception and the fear that comes from it. So uh, that is what I mean when I say that there is a security cost today for uh, Mexico. And, and, and although foreign direct investment has not been stopped by this mm -hmm. level of violence and companies have a clear understanding and they are still investing heavily in Mexico, even with these levels of, of, of scare and violence and fear, uh, nonetheless, Mexico's losing opportunities, uh, uh, many of them, uh, when, especially with the uh, small and medium-sized investor who, mm -hmm. who, who doesn't mm -hmm. have the resources exactly. that IKEA, a big conglomerate has to right. plan and have a strategic analysis of the risk level uh, associated with violence in Mexico. It's interesting that you bring that up because you know, I, I've spent years working international mm -hmm. um, during the first Gulf or the Desert Storm in 1990, uh, I had uh, one of my district managers. We had an office in mm -hmm. Kuwait, and um, and we we're working in Kuwait and uh, actually Iran, Iraq, um, all of those areas that today is a household word, but mm -hmm. years ago people didn't take didn't much notice, right? So it was interesting the amount of preparation. Uh, and, and the amount of money that it cost mm -hmm. us 
to be prepared for that contingency. And it played off because um, our district manager, he was a British chap. He was in he was in Kuwait. He got caught. Our plan went into action, was able to get him out over and get him into Jordan. But you, you say that because uh, it, it takes money. It takes resources to be able to be prepared to do business in those in those countries. So I, I think you say it uh, You're right on. You're absolutely right. Think about, for example, what was the biggest competitive advantage. It still is, by the way, uh, the, 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 the tourist industry seems to be more sophisticated than we thought they would be because one of the interesting findings is that although these levels of violence are there, and we, if we go to the uh, cable news uh, channels, we, right. see only, uh, we hear only about violence in Mexico, right. nonetheless... Uh, uh, occupancy rates in hotel areas and touristic areas, resorts in Mexico, is uh, uh, 80 to 90 percent all the time. So there's, there hasn't been a drop, in part because uh, hotels are offering great deals uh, for people to come. But uh, the tourist, uh, the, the homicide rate of Cancun is uh, less than two uh, homicides per well, 100,000 right. inhabitants. That's that's Germany. That's Sweden. That's exactly. Uh, uh, so so it's still a very secure and safe area. But if you think about it, Mexico used to be, and, and that one, that's one of its competitive advantages from tourism, it was exotic enough so you could feel that you travel far away and you would have the Mayan ruins or the Aztecs and you'll have all these impressive things and nature in the Yucatan Peninsula. But it was close home and it was safe and it was very American-friendly, the kind of culture. So... This this competitive advantage is being put in jeopardy by the levels of violence. This yeah. comfort of being far away and close home at the same time is not there anymore. Now you feel like if you are going to Kuwait or to Iraq and, right. and uh, big companies are putting in place uh, strategic intelligence right. uh, units right. in order to be able to manage it. But the medium and small investor cannot do that. It cannot. So uh, it cannot. I, I I agree in it. And it's interesting because I mean, the mission of our show is to inspire mm-hmm. and to educate and not take any political side whatsoever, just bring wonderful, bright, intelligent people such as you to the show uh, to share uh, around the world because we're, we're so blessed with our coverage. I mean – 21% in uh, India and Brazil and in Vietnam and uh, Iraq. and I mean, it's amazing every time I look at the numbers as to our, our coverage, and, and, uh, it, it, and it's amazing. So, and it's amazing where, uh, where we were talking off air about the technology and how you, how, how you can use technology in a good way or in a bad way. So we got to get a break in. When you come back, I am going to ask for us to discuss why and how as an individual by the last name Guzman for over 30 years in Mexico and how that individual could be listed on Forbes' most top, I think, 50 influential and he is the head of the strongest drug cartel in Mexico. So right after the break, we'll have some fun discussing that one. Perfect. Okay. We'll be right back. Are you looking for a clarity of purpose? Are you a recent college graduate, unemployed, an entrepreneur, or considering a career change, a business owner or employee struggling with performance issues? Classes are forming now for the worldwide phenomenon, What's My Purpose Life Mastery Course 2.0. What's My Purpose Life Mastery Course 2.0 can help you define your goals and vision. Start living your life on purpose. Living on purpose is about joy. Living on purpose is about intention. Living on purpose is about personal transformation and continued growth. What's My Purpose Life Mastery Course 2.0 is a 12-week challenging course that helps you address finances, relationships, spiritual growth, physical and mental health. You will reclaim your personal power and get your life on track to attain true success. Classes are forming now for What's My Purpose Life Mastery Course 2.0. Learn more and register at whatsmypurpose.com. That's whatsmypurpose.com. We are back. Before the break, uh, Guzman, 
A lot of people around the world may not be familiar with this name. Let's talk a little bit about uh, sure. Mexico, mm -hmm. uh, drug cartel, 30 years, on the Forbes most influential list. What's going on? So to give even more context right. to what you're mentioning, the Chapo Guzman, this big drug lord figure, he's becoming an icon of, of all that is wrong with, with uh, the war on drugs and with the cartels. Uh, he, he was able to ex escape a few years ago uh, from the maximum security prison where Mexico, uh, gov Mexico government puts all the big drug lords. So he's that powerful that he was able to go it's like if Al Capone would have escaped Alcatraz, right, right. to, put, yeah, to it. put it in context. That's a good one. Uh, so, yeah. so he's a very powerful man. He's not the only one, but he's a strong representative of the entrepreneurial class that today manages the drug cartels in Mexico. He's ruthless. He's very efficient. Uh, and like many other members of the cartels, his incentives to remain in the business are clear because he he's his only other alternative is end up in prison or end up dead. So he's managing this this uh, cartel in a very ruthless way. He's not the only one. We have other cartels, but he has become this figure that seems to be bigger than life and that has been putting in jeopardy uh, the Mexican government now for many, many years. And it doesn't matter how many resources we throw at them, uh, they seem to grow stronger and more powerful and more adaptive. That can be discussed, that could be debated, but that's certainly the impression from the public in Mexico and abroad. You know, I, I find that fascinating. And you use Al Capone. I mean, the United States, I mean, we are not without our Guzmans of the world either. We, we've had plenty of, and, and they are around the globe. Unfortunately, however, what I find really interesting, how this individual can manage for over 30 years, and then I look at his business, and as you and I were talking uh, coffee yesterday, well, we were talking about uh, the sophistication, the entrepreneurial spirit, the innovation, and before we dig into that, I want to be really clear to our listeners, uh, what we're about to discuss, we're, we're, we're not condoning drug trafficking, not at, not at all. But what we find fascinating is the level of sophistication, the use of technology, uh, and, and we have all the resources uh, from Mexico, federal police we have and others and we have our resources actually coming through the homeland uh, uh, uh department of homeland mm -hmm. defense uh and they seem to be always ahead of us so i i want to offer your 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 listeners a a, a probably a different approach a different okay. lens of thinking about the drug uh, uh the war on drugs and especially the drug cartels okay as you mentioned that this is not uh, this is not a a a, a we're not condoning, we're not accepting. What we want to say, do, is what Clausewitz or the Sun Tzu would say, if you want to be successful against an enemy or an adversary, you first have to understand him or her. Absolutely, so understand. Let's, let's understand the cartels in a different light. And the light that I want right. to offer is the light of a highly uh, adaptive uh, enterprise. They are a logistical company. So they, if, you, if we think of each cartel as an organization, they are a logistics company. They, their business is to bring product from territory A to territory B. Right. The territory A is the production territory. It can be Mexico. It can be Colombia. And this product, it's happening in, in, because of, of, of the powers of arbitrage. Right. Uh, the, this product happens to be a lot more expensive just by the mere fact of moving it from one territory to the other. That's the power of interdiction. Interdiction makes a product more expensive in the places where the interdiction is effective. It creates a black market. So interdiction brings and creates a market in the same way that regulation creates markets in other areas. So it's, again, a phenomenon that we understand in the private sector. Well, they are the most private of 
the whole private sector. They ha they don't have to follow any regulation. They right. will make their own rules. Right. They don't have to pay, to pay taxes. They don't have the uh, complications of managing uh, their uh, uh, business in order to make it profitable from the point of view of taxes. So they don't need any fiscal planning, anything like that. They don't need uh, to respect uh, health codes. They don't need to test their law, their products. They are a pharmaceutical company, but they right. don't have to go through the FDA uh, approval process. Uh, so their only objective is to bring that product that it's very cheap to produce in one place, but it's very hard to produce in another one. So they'll move it. And by virtue of moving it, like a logistics company with a very efficient distribution chain, they will uh, take a huge profit out of it. How huge? Well, uh, it's hard. It's a black market. But estimates place uh, the uh, drug profits between 20 to $30 billion. To give an example, That's if, if the drug cartels would be a company, they would be the company with the highest market cap in the world. They would be, be bigger than uh, Chevron Texaco. Mm -hmm. They would be bigger than, than Walmart, than Apple. So that's, that's the, the size, that's the amount of money that they are uh, generating. And they have two challenges. One is to stay alive. Right. That's, and, and that's a big part of their business model. It's big, big big piece of accountability, right? That's it. So so the CEO responds with its life in these companies. Right. So right. Uh, there are no golden parachutes. There is no way of escaping uh, the bad results. You don't have to deal with a board in the sense that you don't have to pay a dividend and you don't have to be transparent. Yeah. But certainly you'll be killed or in prison right. if you're not effective while managing this drug cartel business. Yeah. Uh, that makes a very powerful environment for innovation and for uh, disruptive innovation. So uh, it's a, an almost Darwinian uh, uh, free market right. environment where the only thing that, you, uh, that will uh, stop you is your death or your imprisonment. And we have created that environment. And they are competing against them. So one cartel against another cartel, and they are competing against uh, public uh, public uh, uh, governments. I'll tell you something. I mentioned the terrorist tactics that right. they are using when they right. throw a, 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 a series of heads in the middle of a dance club in Tijuana that had actually happened many right. times. Right. Well, the main target of that scare tactic it's not the public, it's not the citizens of Tijuana, it's the other cartel. They will be members of the other cartel, they'll be members of the competition, right. and it's a message to say we're here and you shouldn't be. Right. Right. So, in a sense, the first target of terrorist violence, and I'm using the word, the, the government of Mexico and the U.S. tend to be shy about talking about terrorism in this case i'm not i think it's a terrorist tactic and and i and i concur and that's one thing we got to do we got to start calling it what it is i think so I, I there is a clear uh targeted violence and the objective of that violence is not the people who were killed or massacred it's mm -hmm. the people witnessing the act so in that sense it's a clear terrorist uh act so uh the objective is to scare uh, the competition then is to take care of the government but the first right. target of violence today in mexico are the other cartels and this is the level of competition they have so it's a life and death uh, enterprise and in that sense uh, fighting against them becomes very hard because they have the flexibility of a fortune 500 company they have the war chest and they have all the uh, reasons to do the research and development that it's needed to innovate and transform the business model every time that the opposition uh, creates a, a obstacle to what they have. So we've been we've we've seen it. Uh, the routes are very flexible. This is one of the things that I don't like about the metaphor of the war on drugs. War yeah, I, I I actually you just took the words out of my mouth. I said, what in the world does that mean? A war on drugs thinks that you are – when you see maps from some yeah. – uh, you, you, you feel that you're looking at a map from D-Day and you want to <laughs> right. control Normandy and – right. that's not the thing. What they are managing is not territory. They are not conquerors. What they are is logistic uh, companies. So they are managing an effective 
uh, chain of distribution, and chains of distributions adapt and move. They are not territorial in the way we see them in those maps from these big agencies or yeah. newspapers. Yeah. So what we want to do is disrupt their uh, distribution chains in meaningful and permanent ways, and we still don't know how to do that. We know how to disrupt their distribution chains temporarily. Mm-hmm. We do it for a while. Right. So we'll they'll bring in drugs with planes and we'll place raiders. Well, then they'll start building tunnels. We start detecting the tunnels. They'll start going by boat. We start getting them by boat. They create they create semi-submersibles. We start getting the semi-submersibles. They create full submarines. And that's where we are right now. Well, how they will adapt from that, we don't know, but we know that they will because patterns are the the patterns are there. They shift and they move their flows. Right, they bring right. them from the desert to the legal point of entries, they have incredible labs to learn how to conceal drug in legal products, and they know that the Mexican-American border is the most uh, crossed border in the world, so uh, it's very easy for them to conceal one one uh, shipment of illegal woods in the middle of legal products. Mm-hmm. So uh, they are very innovative. You know... I love your explanation, Rodrigo. Love it because it puts into play the challenge that we have in the United States and also that the Mexican government has. And they're always ahead. And I like to put it in the context. In the United States, depending on what numbers you look at, we have 13, 14 million people unemployed. Okay. If we had that same entrepreneurial spirit, <laughs> and, and this is a message that we want our listeners to get, what we explain, and once again, uh, to be redundant, we're not condoning any way uh, drug trafficking. That's not what we're talking about. So be very clear about that. What we're saying is it is a real issue. They are smart. They've got technology, they're entrepreneurial, they're innovative, they have all of these things going, and we've got to, in order to combat it, we've got to be aware, and and that's some of the things, and we started off at the top of the show talking about the uh, uh, Center uh, for the uh, Defense and and Security, how that came about, and I might add, Monday, uh, on our television show, we're going to have Glenn Woodbury, the director, and uh, Heather Esron, and uh, on the on, on the show, and we're going to be uh, making people more aware of what the center is and what it is not. I think it's one of the best kept secrets, uh, probably true, <laughs> best kept secrets out there. So we'll be digging into more of that on Monday, and at some point in time, uh, I'd like to have you back again because we're. Uh, can you believe it? Uh, we got 17 minutes left in the show, we, and I don't believe we even got started here. So, uh, so we got a lot to talk about, a lot of information, and and what we want our listeners to really understand around the globe is you've got to have a voice. You cannot remain passive. This is an issue. Uh, we can take it from Syria. We watch this happen. Uh, I mean, Lebanon. I mean, all over these things, and uh, they are bad people, whatever that means. But we can dig in from a psychology standpoint uh, from, from that on, on, on another show. But moving product from A to B, and the B, if you don't have a, if you don't have a market, you don't have a business, do you? That's it. So. The biggest market for Mexico is the United States. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, I know this is going to make some people go, geez, whites at it again. It is. The United States is our is the biggest market. That, that's, that's true. And, and by the way, it's the biggest market for legal exports and illegal exports. Right. So in, in a sense, the size and the power that we have today with the cartels is the dark side of the powerful and positive forces of globalization. So in the same way globalization has given us so many wonderful positive opportunities, it also created this uh, uh, area of opportunity for the drug trafficking organizations to take advantage uh, uh, to take advantage of the same forces. So 
uh, in the same way that they have adapted, we have to adapt to at the, at, at the side of government and at the side of the people. So we need to become more adaptive. Uh, we need to be more creative, more innovative. And these are words that tend to be not in the common lexicon of public bureaucracies, innovation, adaptation. Uh, uh, th those are things that are very hard to, 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 to manage inside of bureaucratic bodies. It's mm -hmm. not impossible, and some agencies in the U.S. governments are, and U.S. government are highly innovative, and, 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 and we can think of a few of them. So we need to bring that to uh, the struggle against these innovative actors, and we, make, we need to have a very innovative and very creative uh, uh, process to deal with this problem. Uh, old recipes are not working, that's, that's clear, so we have to start creating new ones. I, I tell you, um, we have 14 minutes left in the show. What I would like to do and remaining, would you please uh, give our listeners a website or a blog uh, that they could go visit and to look at some of your work? Sure. So I, I have my own website. Okay. It's www.rodrigonietogomez.com. So uh, that's that's my name, Rodrigo Nieto, N-I-E-T-O, Gomez, like the last name, right. uh, dot .com. So I, I, I tend to be also very active in Twitter. So okay. uh, my username is Rodrigo Nieto. Uh, uh, and uh, and I tend to publish uh, some of my material and comments both in Twitter and, and in, on the website. Good. Uh, because, ladies and gentlemen, please make sure that you you follow. Uh, I don't think I'm, uh, I'm – I've been very clear, uh, such a fan. Uh, and uh, we're going to be here in this name uh, to come for years to come. Of course. Uh, one of the uh, most brightest – innovative uh people i met in a long time you, uh just just absolutely wonderful now you are a professor mm -hmm. naval postgraduate school and over in the the center for homeless and security security mm -hmm. without giving away any preparatory and nps what do you teach I teach border security and uh, Mexico politics and, and security environment. That's for NPS. And your typical uh, students are? Uh, they are military. They are members of the U.S. Armed Forces uh, and from uh, armed forces around the world. The, the U.S. has a very strong uh, cooperation program with other military uh, with other military uh, uh, forces around the globe. So we'll have a very interesting uh, group of uh, military uh, members of, of uh, uh, sol soldiers, uh, sailors, uh, marines, and uh, uh, members of the Air Force. Uh, so those are our students for the NPS. Hmm. And then on the other side of the uh, Center for uh, Helm and Defense Security, it's a it's an interesting uh, it's an interesting uh, yin and yang <laughs> in the sense that while uh, we do have at the Center for Homeland Defense Security members of the military, we do have students who come uh, and are part of the Northern Command. Right. Uh, Eighty percent of our students come from the civilian world. They are uh, uh, public uh, servants. Right. What you would call homeland security uh, practitioners. Right. They that means many things. That means that they can come from the Department of Homeland Security. They might come from uh, 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 Customs and Border Protection, the Border Patrol, uh, uh, ICE, uh, many of the agencies inside of of, of the Department of Homeland Security, uh, TSA, etc. Uh, but they, they can also come from different parts of federal government or state and local. So we're talking about the police chief of a small rural town somewhere or the fire, depart the fire department uh, battalion chief of this or that city, uh, public health. Uh, so it's a very diverse, very eclectic group of highly responsible, highly committed uh, uh, members of the U.S., government at different levels, and they come uh, in order to not only learn about the things that we teach at the center, but also they come to teach us and to teach themselves mm -hmm. uh, with a very creating, creating a very powerful synergy in the classroom. And I would say that one of the biggest virtues of the program is that it has created this incredible network mm -hmm. of uh, friendships and uh, contacts 
uh, that is very diverse. And as you know, creativity happens in the fringes of, of, of established fields. So when you get a cop and you get a, a doctor and you get a – you don't know what you'll get, but you'll get something interesting. Right, right. So right, you right. put all these together and these conversations are, are, are really uh, – the most re- rewarding part of, of of the job at the yeah. at the center. Yeah, uh, and and it's interesting. Uh, civilian to include, I mean, commonly the first responders, the That's medical and mer- medical emergency, and and it's interesting uh, from the uh, uh, the commission, the nine eleven co- commission, and one of the many issues that we had in, with the first responders at the world. Trade Center was a communication issue, and this is one of the one of the many great things that's come out of this work is that now hopefully we got all the agencies we can at least talk to each other. That's it. That's true. Yeah, that's true. We have an umbrella now that allows them to talk to each other. I would tell to your I mean, I don't know if your listeners have read the the 9/11 Commission report. Well, they should. They should. It's 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 uh, normally commission reports are boring, and and I understand that. This is maybe one of the most beautiful reports I've read. The prose is marvelous. So the people, the, the work that was done in this government document, it's impressive. And there was a quote that became very famous about it, and you know it perfectly. They said that 9/11 was a failure of imagination. Exactly. So Love again. That. The concept of imagination as a key component of the public administration is not something we're used to. Well, we should. We need to be imaginative because our adversaries are. The 9-11, the Frankfurt cell that created and and, and put together what we call today 9-11, they were sadly very creative people. They took advantage of vulnerabilities that were there since the 70s or 60s, since the World Trade Center was built. But in a very innovative way, they combined the steel frame uh, that created that that skyscraper. They recombined it with uh, civilian transportation. I'm sure that the engineers that worked hard uh, at Boeing to create those planes, never thought of them as weapons of mass destruction. It was not the objective of the designers and the engineers. The same thing for the architect of, nine, of, of the World Trade Center that put his heart in that project. And then you have these evil uh, people who will put all that together and create 9-11 and create one of the saddest moments in uh, human history. So uh, creativity can be used for negative things. Uh, imagination can be used for negative things, so we have to be twice as creative and three times as imagine as as, as capable of, of imagination uh, in order to counter uh, this kind. And I think we can because I believe that uh, we are more we, we have more good guys than bad guys and powers in the numbers. So we just have to bring them all together so they, we can learn from each other. I could, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And uh, past shows. Uh, we've been drilling down on uh, the budget and uh, trust, and especially uh, we can all recall some several weeks back when we had both houses and the administration mm-hmm. when we were doing this, what I call this Yahoo messing around over the debt ceiling mm-hmm. issue and, and, and how that affected the markets, and it goes to the conversation that we were having off, off air as well in regards to trust. Mm-hmm. Uh, what trust? How trust drives the markets, and I agree. I agree with you, Rodrigo. We, our better days are ahead. I think so too. Better days are ahead for with the work that you're doing and the centers. And I don't want to take too much of the wonderful thunder away from uh, Heather or Glenn that we're going to be talking about on the television sure. show on Monday. But I am going to put this piece. As far as I'm concerned, one of the things that governments got right. Is the center? <laughs> I, I, I could I couldn't agree more, but I'm biased. Yeah, I know so, you work there. I, I cannot, but but, uh, but I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Uh, so Heather and Glenn, if you're listening, I, I, I stowed your line there, so you can you can you can you can, you can have it have it on Monday. But I I, I agree. It, it's it's one of those, and to be able to continue to bring uh, these minds together, developing these networks, sharing of ideas. 
And another wonderful thing that I think is coming out of the center is the fact that the students are leaving with this thesis, and it's something that they're actually taking back to their agencies and trying to implement. However, that is a challenge there because a lot of agencies do not have the resources to implement some of the great stuff that's coming out of there. So that's another issue. That's that's right. But one of the virtues, and we were talking about this before uh, uh, off-air when we were mentioning how technology has made possible uh, radio stations yeah, what like we're doing this today. what we're doing. Right. So people say, well, you have to do m m more with less. Well, I would say you you do different with less. So I like if, that. if resources are diminishing, you do different, and we learn to do it. And it used to cost millions of dollars to broadcast uh, to just a few thousand uh, individuals. Today, with a lot less resources, you can reach more people and go abroad. So we learn how to be innovative and how to use the new tools that technology and science and ingenuity and intelligence are giving us. We learn how to bring that to government to do different homeless. We need an intelligent government. We need a government that do, does uh, uh, things more effectively, differently, with new resources that cost less. I, I, I just like to show this today. And we're in the studio, and like I said, we're broadcasting live from beautiful Carmel, California, and we have this beautiful space, It's uh, uh, and we're sitting here, we're having a conversation, and we know that we got over 500,000 people that's going to be able to listen to this, and that just absolutely is mind-boggling to me, and it's humbling uh, that we have... And, and, and your words are really going to uh, stay with me for a long time in regards uh, you can use technology in a good way or in a bad way. Well, isn't that life? It's the beginning of the time. That's that's completely true. It's uh, Fire could be used to warm and to cook and to, or it could use to burn and kill. Uh, we've been learning that the tool doesn't matter. What What matters is the people using the tool. So uh, we need better tools, that's for sure, but we also need uh, people to learn how to use better those tools to do great things. We've been doing it for the corporate world. We have transformed it. We've made the world better. I'm a firm believer on progress. I think that we are better today than we, what we used to be before. Uh, I, wouldn't, I don't know you, but I wouldn't trade my life for Louis XIV's life, uh, the king of France. I, Not happening. I, I, I love my life today. I, don't, I, I think that... <clears throat> We are better today than we have ever been, but I, I agree with you. I think that our best days are yet to come. The, the, they, they are, and, and, and it's also – I was looking at some numbers and uh, about uh, the fatalities in uh, Mexico, mm -hmm. <coughs> big numbers you know, from the cartel. But yet uh, we're set in this beautiful space in Carmel. 30-minute drive in the Salinas, California area, mm -hmm. and we have one of the uh, major gang problems. problems. And so it's inside and outside of our borders. Sure. And it all uh, starts uh, when, when an individual takes their first breath, we start picking up what I call baggage, whether it's good or bad. So... This whole thing that we have in front of us is how we continue to actually bring the globe closer yep. and understand individuals and recognize that everybody has a right to provide for his or her family. Yeah, and also recognize that innovation has a dark side. I mean, it uh, does. We've been, and, and we liked it, and I'm a, a big, big proponent of innovation as the driving engine. Of, of 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 the economy, but innovation has a dark side. So we better be sure that highly innovative people have an outlet to put that innovation into a greater good instead of creating highly innovative drug cartels or highly innovative gangs. I, I agree. One more time, your website. www.rodrigonietogomez.com It has been a pleasure, my friend. I hope you'll come back. Uh, we, like I said, the hour just flew by. As we can all hear, we're getting this in our ear and everybody's just letting us know that okay, we get it, we get it, we know we're running out of time. 
Uh, so it's been such a pleasure, and uh, you're welcome back anytime. Jim, thank you very much. I really enjoy it, and thank you to your listeners for uh, giving us the great pressure, precious gift of time. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. Ladies and gentlemen, Monday, uh, our television show uh, launches on KYMB-TV. Congratulations Comcast. about thank that. Thank you. Thank you. I'm very excited. Comcast 19, and we're going to be streaming live Monday to over 200 countries at JLWCOS.TV. Impressive. So we are very excited about that. And until next week, uh, make, make, it a, make it a great week, and we'll see everybody on Monday. Thank Take you care. very much. You're welcome. You've been listening to Jim White's Circle of Success Radio. Please visit our website, jlwhiteinternational.com. Join us next time as Jim White brings it all together on Jim White's Circle of Success Radio.